All right, we are back. I'd like to go out with some uh, good news in our third segment today. But, you know, one thing we neglected at the start of the show was to name our jackass of the week. It looks as though we're going to have to go with Frank Rathburn this week. Mr. Rathburn is a spokesman, and I'm not making this up, for the National Community Associations Institute, which is an advocacy and educational organization in Alexandria, Virginia, for community organizations. Mr. Rathburn has the, uh, the courage to buck the trend across this nation of allowing people to dry their clothes outdoors. Article by Ian Urbina in the New York Times last week. Started out by noting that a woman named Jill Saylor, after taking a class that covered global warming, decided to save energy by drying her laundry on the clothesline at her mobile home. She was quoted as saying, I figured trailer parks were the only place left where hanging your laundry was actually still allowed. Fortunately, she's wrong. Like the majority of the 60 million people who now live in the country's roughly 300,000 private communities, Sailor was forbidden to dry her laundry outside because many viewed it as an eyesore, not unlike storing junk cars in driveways, and a marker of poverty that lowers property values. Fortunately, however, state lawmakers across the country, including Colorado, Hawaii, Maine, and Vermont, have overridden these local rules with legislation protecting the rights to hang laundry outdoors. And I have to ask, dear listener, do you hang your laundry outdoors? I mean, because if you live in California, where it doesn't rain six months out of the year at least, it's a way to use free solar energy and stay off the grid. I've done it my whole life long, and and, and I'm sort of shocked to realize that uh, apparently I'm in the minority. But, you know, as they say, fortunately, uh, wiser heads are enacting legislation to protect your right to do so, which in many cases is, is frankly, you know, restricted by community organizations. That's That's where Frank Rathburn comes in. He was quoted in the article as saying, you know, it's already hard enough to sell a house in this economy, and when it comes to clotheslines, it should be up to each community association, not state lawmakers, to set rules, much like it is with rules involving parking, architectural guidelines, or pets. Anyway, let's see if we can't give him that Jackass of the Week award, Mr. McMillan. Anyway, I love this article. Apparently, eight states already limit the ability of homeowner associations to restrict the installation of solar energy systems, and legal experts are now debating whether clotheslines might qualify. The article quoted Stephen Lake, a British filmmaker who is releasing a documentary next May called Drying for Freedom about the clothesline debate in the United States. Said Mr. Lake, it seems like such a mundane thing, hanging laundry, and yet it draws in all these questions about the individual rights, private property, class, aesthetics, and the environment. And reportedly, the film follows the actual case of feuding neighbors in Verona, Mississippi, where, according to police, one man shot and killed another last year because he was tired of telling the man to stop hanging his laundry outdoors. And, of course, they get a real estate agent to sign in uh, from Richmond, Virginia, saying that while she had no personal opinion on clotheslines, most of her clients were not thrilled with the idea of seeing their neighbor's underwear blowing in the breeze. 
She recalled how she was unable to sell a beautifully restored Victorian home in the Church Hill neighborhood of Richmond because it looked out onto a neighbor's laundry hanging from a second-story back porch. And in June, the house went into foreclosure. To which I say, good! And this goes on. Apparently, Alexander Lee, a lawyer in Concord, New Hampshire, runs a website, Project Laundry List, with the goal of promoting hanging clothes to dry. Said Mr. Lee, change promises to be slow. There are a lot of kids these days who don't even know what a clothespin is. They think it's a potato chip clip. Anyway, if you don't have one of those clothes, if you don't have a clothesline in your backyard, you get one of those ones that real and unreal in a lot of the hardware stores. And, you know, when you want to use some free solar energy, pull the thing out, hang some clothes up, let them dry, and fold them up. At least if you don't live in Verona, Mississippi. All right, mark my words. Next spring, we're going to see if we can't look up Stephen Lake and talk to him about this documentary, Drying for Freedom. Something else to consider that's eco-friendly, plant-free trees. It's fall now, and supposedly it's an excellent time to plant trees. You can call the Sacramento Tree Foundation. I think I'll give their number, 916-924-8733. Then send out a community forester to your house and select locations for trees and plant some in the ground. It really does cut, uh, cut AC bills in the summer. And uh, SMUD, of course, is tied to the Sacramento Tree Foundation. You can call SMUD for more information, too, at 1-888-742-7683. We got hit by 50-mile-an-hour winds earlier this week, and I had uh, part of my tree come down in the front yard, missing uh, everything of value, luckily. Let's say that's one thing that we do lack in California, the warm rain. We generally get wet here only in the dead of winter or in the coolness of spring, and so to get kind of a semi-tropical storm blowing through, even with those blustery winds, was kind of cool. At least at least the smell was the next day. We want to also remind you of what uh, we heard from Dr. Richard Muller of UC Berkeley on last week's program about how if you use air conditioning, you should paint your roof white, according to U.S. Energy Secretary Stephen Chu. Its reflective effect could reduce your electric usage by up to 15%, according to Dr. Chu. But as Richard Muller pointed out, you can... Get paint that's basically white in the infrared. In other words, it doesn't look white to the eye, but it reflects light, uh, reflects heat quite effectively. Something to think about. And some, uh, let's see, some further good news in the ecology department. Wonderful article by Tony Perry in the LA Times last week about uh, the shrikes of San Clemente Island. Apparently the loggerhead shrike is uh, on the endangered species list, but uh, one particular specimen named Trampus got let loose out on the island, and he's been breeding up a storm. Statistically, in eight breeding seasons, Trampus has sired 62 chicks, and from those chicks have come 93 grand chicks, 61 great grand chicks, and 25 great great grand chicks. Trampus is the star of this, uh, this restoration of the loggerhead shrike population. And which is unusual because he apparently was hatched in captivity. Shrikes are kind of weird birds. I remember reading about them when I was a boy. They will attack, kill, and eat other birds. Even though, unlike, you know, hawks and eagles, they don't have big talons and, you know, <laughs> and massive beaks. They look like any other bird. They're just killers. And after they've killed another bird or a frog or what have you, they have kind of a nasty habit of, you know, Finding a, either a, a thorn bush or, 
or a, a piece of barbed wire and skewering the victim and leaving it out there to dry, I guess, for later consumption. So, yeah, I guess they're kind of in the jerky business. I remember seeing a frog stuck out on a barbed wire fence when I was a kid and thought, boy, I bet there must be some shrikes around here. Anyway, perhaps not the nicest species of bird, but making a comeback rather admirably down on San Clemente Island. And speaking of animals, apparently out in Colorado, officials have released more than 100,000 Chinese beetles along the Arkansas River. Their goal is for the insects to suppress a rapidly growing weed with a ravenous thirst. Apparently the tamarisk weed, which originated in Asia, consumes hundreds of billions of gallons of water a year in parched western states, noting the single plant can suck more than 200 gallons a day. The beetles, also from Asia, love to eat tamarisk. We hope that experiment goes well. Closer to home, there's some whining going on about the costs of protecting the red-legged frog, which was the frog written about by Mark Twain in the, the celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. Apparently, federal wildlife officials told the Sacramento Bee that uh, the measures needed to protect the red-legged frog will cost developers up to $507 million over the next two decades. Personally, my great fear is that when this uh, economic crunch uh, passes, that people will go back to making money the good old-fashioned way here in California, buying land and developing it. Integral to that plan, at least for Southern California real estate developers, is, of course, the new thinly disguised peripheral canal that Governor Schwarzenegger is trying to sneak past voters. Apparently has some help, too. To quote Stuart Leavenworth, column in the B, Daryl Steinberg is lord of the Senate, but in his own backyard he may have to hide in the doghouse for a while. Local politicians are angry at Steinberg for negotiating a water deal with Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger that, in their view, threatens the water supplies of Sacramento and Northern California. Many of these politicians were slow to see this train coming, but now that it is roaring into the station, they are throwing flaming tires onto the tracks. Leavenworth quoted that in a visit to the Bee's editorial board um, earlier this month, Daryl Steinberg was quite animated. In an 80-minute meeting, said Leavenworth, we questioned him on the process that led to the water package. Closed-door meetings, minimal hearings, language changed the last minute. Steinberg countered that he'd held numerous hearings, had been meeting with stakeholders, and still fine-tuning the bill. Said Steinberg, editorial boards criticize politicians for not getting stuff done. Then you criticize us because the process itself at times is a little bit messy and a little bit ugly. And as for the governor... He threatened in a fit of pique to veto all the, bills, all the bills coming before him if he didn't get his water deal. But then he backed off and decided to continue his backroom wheeling and dealing. Sacramento Bee has been weighing in on this issue on a regular basis. I think they're getting it. Well, sometimes I think so. According to the editorial on, on, the, on, October, on October 11th, the peripheral canal was divisive in the 1980s and is stirring strong emotions now. One water lobbyist recently appeared in a TV show and claimed it would decimate the Delta. Guess what? The Delta's being decimated now. To which we would say, yes, and how will taking more water out of it help? They went on, any canal proposal will need to be closely examined to better understand its potential impact on fisheries and flows. But for far too long, canal bashers have balked at any fresh studies of conveyance options while offering no real alternatives of their own. Okay, I got an alternative. Why don't we stop 
real estate development in Southern California, stop massive water subsidies to corporate growers in the San Joaquin Valley, and simply not send more water south. And by the way, dear listeners, we've been asking this for months. If you can come up with a statistic that shows us what percentage of the water that enters the the California aqueduct evaporates before it gets to its goal, we would be much obliged. We just can't seem to find anyone who will uh, to will share that statistic with it. And I know someone out there knows that number. Environmentalist Dan Bacher suspects it's something approaching 50%, and we wonder if he's right. Because another alternative of our own might be to put the water in a pipe instead of a ditch. Then you wouldn't have to send so much of it south to Arnold Schwarzenegger's real estate developer pals. You know, not to be overly critical of the governor. He, he has done some good things, but his sympathies on this issue clearly lie with, well, the people we just mentioned. Governor Schwarzenegger has made a lot of money in bodybuilding and a lot of money in the movies, and he's made probably even a lot more money in real estate development. So we don't think he has Northern California's interests at heart. In fact, Rex Babin's excellent cartoon uh, was below that editorial in the B, pretty much said it all, which was a candy-striped pipe starting in Sacramento and headed south, titled Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, Peripheral Straw. Anyway, we are going to bring Dan Bacher back on the program to talk about water issues, and um, pursuant to a conversation we had some time back, it's encouraging to note that the San Joaquin River, which used to carry the continent's southernmost salmon run until the 1940s when the government dammed it to nurture cropland, now has water back in it. Earlier this month, some surges of water were let loose out of Freant Dam to put water back into the creek bed. We mentioned this in passing a couple of weeks ago, but the question is, will the salmon come back? I don't know the answer to that, but Dan might, so we'll have to have him come back and discuss that issue. All right, and speaking of issues that sort of have to do with water. There's talk about upcoming water shortages all over the world, and we mentioned on this pro- we mentioned this program last year that uh, a lot of countries are going to start irrigating with sewage because they don't have much of a choice. A study last year done by the International Water Management Institute based in Sri Lanka noted that growing one kilocalorie of food typically requires one liter of water, with 2.5 billion extra mouths to feed by 2050, and let's, let's hope to have that doesn't happen, will require at least 20,000 cubic kilometers more water annually. That's more than twice the volume of irrigation water now used worldwide. It's estimated that 20% of the world's food is grown in urban areas, and irrigation water from sewers comes with free fertilizer in the form of nitrates and phosphates bound up in the human waste. So this is a resource that poor urban farmers can't afford to ignore. The problem is using completely untreated sewage adds all sorts of other things to the fields that aren't so desirable, like cadmium, zinc, and lead. The best answer, according to this report from the International Water Management Institute, was that, uh, well, you treat the water. You allow it to, uh, to sit in ponds and let the solids settle out, well, that, that could help. Trouble is, there's no money to do this. The report said that the answer is not to ban wastewater irrigation, but to improve it. Yet partly because the practice is flat-out illegal, it's attracted virtually no research. Let's hope that changes in the future. All right, final item of the day from the miscellaneous file. 
Matt Kaplan, writing in National Geographic News, noted that someone finally found a vegetarian spider. Yes, although they seem like the quintessential carnivores, someone has come up with a new species of spider that eats acacia buds. Acacias, as you may well know from the Discovery Channel, are home to a species of ant that lives inside its hollow thorns. The ants protect the plant and return for food and shelter. Well, the spiders realized that the buds were actually fairly nutritious. I don't, no, no, I, I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. I don't know how the spiders figure this out. But somehow, along the way, the spider was able to transform its nimble, aggressive, carnivorous behavior into ant avoidance while attacking flower buds. Of course, it was known that these spiders aren't strict vegetarians. If they get a chance to eat some of the ant larvae, they will do so. Said Christopher Meehan, a biologist at the University of Arizona at Tucson, which discovered the habits of these spiders, it's utterly surreal to see a spider use such effective hunting strategies to hunt a plant. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. And that's all we got for this program. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, as they all are. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, by the street of light, he arrives just in time. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, welcome fame, he's ignored. Action is his reward to him. Life is a great big pain up. Wherever there's a hang up, you'll find a Spider-Man.